All right, we make a transition tonight from the authentication of the king to his rejection by national Israel. This marks a new division in our study. We are almost halfway through and we're only on point three of 12. Um, I promise the other ones go a little faster. This is now the controversy over the king. His investigation by the Sanhedrin is over. They are looking for an opportunity to publicly reject him. And in our passages tonight, they find one. Unfortunately for them, this is an unforgivable sin. They are not able to recover from the damage that this does to them in their generation. A brief recap then of what we have done up to this point primarily since I uh, did not get to points two or three last week, and we still went almost an hour and a half. This is what happens when you're not here. The background, of course, to the Sermon on the Mount, which we saw last week, which was very important, was that it came during the Sanhedrin investigation. Probably because of this sermon, the investigation ended. They decided they have to reject him. They cannot... uh, accept his message. The conflict was over the oral law, the additions, the fence that the Pharisees built around the Mosaic law, and in doing so, they so corrupted it that it no longer resembled the same law that God had passed down to Moses. And this came after the closure of the apostolic group. He is now teaching and training his twelve. The Sermon on the Mount, as we saw, was not a constitution for the coming millennial kingdom. It, it, does, uh, it is the true interpretation of the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law will not be reestablished in the kingdom. It has been completed by Christ. It is not a means of salvation. It was a rule of life for those who lived under the law who were already saved. It is not a church age ethic. Although some of these principles will be restated to the disciples of Christ in this next phase of his ministry, which is training the twelve for the establishment of the church. So the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' perfect interpretation of the righteous standard required by the Mosaic Law, in contrast with the Pharisees' false standard of oral law righteousness, because the law points to him. The law points you away from your own righteousness and to the righteousness of Christ. The law of the Pharisees pointed towards their own self-righteousness. It had to be rebuted. So this is Messiah's interpretation of the righteousness of the law against the Pharisees' interpretation. They had to be corrected. This constituted the Messiah's public rejection of Phariseeism. They would have to reject their own theology, their own system, in order to accept him. They chose to reject him, and now they sought an opportunity. Immediately following this, Jesus' authority was recognized in Capernaum by a Gentile, not by the Jews, although this Gentile, who is claimed a lover of Israel, who financed the building of the synagogue which Jesus preached in, This Gentile had faith in Jesus, and Jesus claims that he has not seen faith like this Gentile's faith in all of Israel. 
And that is the problem that is coming to a head tonight. Israel's lack of faith in the Messiah, despite all of the signs and all of the authentication that he has received. <clears throat> After this, he moves to a city called Nain. This is the same city in which Elisha rose the uh, only son of a Gentile widow. And Jesus Christ sees a funeral uh, procession in which the only son of a widow had died. And he raises this son from the dead out of compassion for the woman, not to authenticate himself. This is a foreshadow of his coming change in the purpose of his signs. But what is important in this episode is that when Jesus rose this child from the dead, they did not say, oh, look, here is our Messiah, but oh, look, here is a great prophet. This introduces us to one of our two themes tonight. The first major theme is what happens to the forerunner will happen to the Messiah. And the second theme is more than a prophet. This was the issue. John and Jesus were just prophets to Israel. They did not realize the importance of John's ministry, so they did not realize the importance of Jesus' ministry, and they were both rejected. The rejection of John comes first. It's well outlined in Matthew. Matthew 11 is the rejection of John. Matthew 12 is the rejection of Jesus. This episode starts with John sending a few of his disciples to Jesus to ask him, are you the Messiah or have, uh, essentially, have I misidentified you? Should we be looking for another one? The reason he did this was because Jesus was not being received well by the leadership in Israel. John had expected that after identifying the Messiah, eventually all of Israel would come to believe in him. This was not occurring, and this is what caused John's doubts. John is in prison getting reports from his disciples. He's been in prison for over a year now. Jesus tells the disciples of John to go back and report two things to John. He says to tell John what they hear and what they see. What they see is the blind receiving sight, the lame walking, lepers being cleansed, the deaf hearing, and the dead being raised. These signs would authenticate the Messiah, especially this one where lepers are being cleansed. This was a messianic miracle, and the plural here alludes to the fact that this had been performed more than once by this time by Jesus. But he also tells John to tell, or he also tells the disciples of John to tell John what they hear. And what they hear is the gospel being preached to the poor. This gospel is a kingdom message. It is the message that the kingdom has come and Jesus is the Messiah. Receive him and receive the kingdom. The message and the signs both authenticate the Messiah. John was not incorrect in evaluating the Messiah. He had rightly prophesied. Now this gets us into 
the concept of what is a prophet. A prophet does not speak on his own authority. Although the words that he preaches are always intelligible, he does not always understand their import. He does not always understand exactly how God is going to bring about what he has prophesied. He is reporting the words of God. John faithfully reported the words of God. When God identified Jesus by the descending spirit after his baptism, John pointed to Jesus. This is what he had been told to do and said that he is the Messiah. Jesus gives an evaluation then of this prophet. He says that he is an unshakable reed. This probably has to do with his message. His message did not waver. He was not ambiguous in the message. When he identified the Messiah, he stood by that identification. He continued to perform this prophetic function to the time when he was uh, imprisoned, right around the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, after the Passover in which he overturned the tables. Secondly, John was not accustomed to luxurious clothing. Perhaps this was a jab at the Pharisees, who were elegantly dressed. But it identifies John as an Old Testament-style prophet. He came wearing burlap. He came eating locusts and honey. He was not one accustomed to luxury. He was a prophet. He was a prophet indeed, and as a prophet, he had the authority of God's word. He spoke on behalf of God. His message should be listened to, but Jesus says something interesting, that he was more than just a prophet. In fact, of all the Old Testament prophets, John was the greatest, because all the prophets pointed towards the Messiah, but John was the only one who was given the privilege of identifying the Messiah himself. John's position, John's privilege as this forerunner to the Messiah set him far above all of the previous prophets. Not only that, but his ministry was probably wider spread than all the other prophets as well. In Acts 19, when Paul and Apollos go to Ephesus, they find a group of uh, disciples of John who had not heard that John was able to identify the Messiah. They had been baptized by him, and, at, uh, and then they departed, I guess, from Israel before they got this message that the Messiah had come. So his ministry stretched all the way into western Turkey. It stretched into Iraq and Iran. There are still groups of people that we uncover um, who trace their lineage back to John the Baptist. Sometimes Jesus is known in their groups originally, but mostly he is identified later. John's ministry stretched all over the Middle East. In fact, if not for the overshadowing ministry of Jesus Christ, we would probably still have four Gospels about John's ministry. It was that important. But no matter how important John's ministry was, it paled in comparison to Jesus Christ's. So John was more than a prophet, and more than that, he was greater than every Old Testament saint. This would include Moses. It would include Abraham. It would include David. This might be like nails on a chalkboard to some of those Jews who hold these men in such high regard. 
and have imprisoned John. John is greater than every patriarch. He is greater than Israel himself. Jesus says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. But then he makes this statement, and it's a, an offering of the kingdom. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The kingdom is still being offered to Israel. John has come preaching the kingdom, but he himself has not entered it. He himself will not get the opportunity even to enter it. Hall Holler says about this, though John was the greatest prophet, he ministered outside the kingdom age. And so he could not rise to the level of greatness that even the lowest inhabitant of the coming glorious kingdom will have. In Jesus' statement, he does two things at the same time. He repeats the offer of the kingdom that each person there has the opportunity or that uh, rather Israel as a whole has the opportunity to receive the kingdom and become greater than John, greater than every Old Testament prophet, by means of entering into the kingdom where their greatness will be elevated to Christ's um, own greatness. However, he also alludes to the fact that John will die before the kingdom age begins. John will not enter living into the kingdom. He will be resurrected into the kingdom. Daniel is given the same promise in Daniel 12, the very last verse of Daniel. God says to him, but as for you, go your way to the end, then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Every single one of the Old Testament prophets died with the expectation of being resurrected again into the kingdom. No Old Testament prophet would enter into the kingdom alive. But here, Jesus recognizes that John's ministry, John's message, had been rejected by the Pharisees. They did this on the basis of demon possession. They said, John is demon-possessed. This wasn't because they had good evidence for it, rather because they couldn't find any evidence for rejecting him. They said he fasts, he does not eat food, and he does not drink wine. Well, John was a prophet in the Old Testament style. He came eating locusts and honey. This was part of his prophetic function, his office. As well, he was a Nazarene, Nazarite from birth. He was not supposed to drink any wine. So they repudiated him for this reason that he did not eat luxurious foods like they did. He did not partake in any alcoholic drinks like they did. And they used this as evidence to say that he was demon-possessed. It sounds a little bizarre, and Jesus points to this. He also says this is a little bizarre because they criticize Jesus for the opposite thing. They criticize Jesus because he doesn't fast, and they criticize Jesus because he does drink. It's kind of a catch-22 with the Pharisees. The real issue is both of these men have rejected Phariseeism. Neither one is demon-possessed, but what happens to the forerunner will happen to the Messiah. Jesus will also be rejected 
on the lame excuse of demon possession. And so, just as the forerunner, so the Messiah, Jesus' rejection is now imminent. And he gives a warning in the sense of another allusion to eminence. You'll remember that what happens in Nazareth will later happen in the rest of Israel. When he's not operating in Nazareth, he's here operating in Capernaum. It's extended to Capernaum. What happens in Capernaum will happen to the rest of Israel. And so he condemns three cities in Galilee, Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida. He says if the miracles that had been performed in either of, or in any of these cities had been performed in Tyre, Sidon, or Sodom, they all would have repented. He's alluding to the hardness of hearts in these three cities, that they have received so much revelation, and yet they have rejected all of it. Any other city which had received that many miracles would have believed, but they did not. Notice then that he says it will be more tolerable for the city of Sodom than it will for the city of Capernaum. There will be degrees of punishment, and these degrees of punishment are not necessarily based on one's degree of violence or degree of goodness of heart on this earth. It's on the degree of faith. How much revelation have they received and yet rejected? One more note on this. Although three cities are condemned, we only have recorded miracles being performed in two of them. Jesus says that these were the three cities in which he performed the majority of his miracles. Not one miracle is recorded in Chorazin. John gives us the answer to how this can be. He says there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. There is simply not enough room to record all of Jesus' miracles over those three years. Each of these gospel writers was incredibly selective in their material. In fact, John probably only records seven weeks out of the life of Christ. That is quite an addition. Addition, not addition. But Jesus also invites those who have not yet rejected to believe. He invites them into the rest of salvation offered in the kingdom. He says that uh, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Entrance into the kingdom comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son whom the Father has sent, the Son who reveals the Father. Jesus' function is to reveal God. That is one of the themes of the book of John. 
but also the revelation of Jesus, the revelation by his miracles, by the witness of John, by the witness of the scriptures, by the witness of the spirit, these are all being taken away from Israel at this point. He is about to be rejected, and rather than heap up coals on their head by continuing to give them revelation that they will reject, this revelation is disappearing. He is no longer going to perform miracles for the purpose of bringing Israel as a whole to faith. He will perform miracles on the basis of faith for the compassion within him to those who have already believed. Some will come to believe when looking at those miracles, but the purpose of those miracles is not to get Israel to make a decision about his messiahship anymore. That revelation is being cut off. And so he makes this final plea with Israel. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is in contrast with the yoke or the learning of the Pharisees. What they have created, what they have concocted, Jesus will call violence against the kingdom. They shut it off so that not only they do not enter, but the rest of Israel cannot enter. They add tasks and duties to the salvation of these Jews. Jesus offers it on the basis of faith alone, in him alone as the Messiah of Israel. We have the record of an event of faith here in Luke 7. Luke is primarily concerned with three issues. Actually, he's primarily concerned with the life of Jesus in chronological order, but he has a few sub-concerns. One is the function of women in the ministry of Jesus, which we will see in two passages tonight. The other is what happens to Jerusalem. And uh, I'm spacing on the other, but there are three. But here in this account of Jesus' feet being washed, he enters the house of Simon the Pharisee. And Simon is trying to find a reason, something he can put a pin in, to say, for this reason, we have to reject this man, Jesus. He has not been invited to Simon's house to enjoy a pleasant meal with him to enjoy fellowship, but for the purpose of investigating Jesus, to try to find a place to trip him up. Jesus is not ignorant to this fact either. Jesus is treated very coldly in the house of Simon. In fact, it's a prostitute who comes up and pours expensive perfume on his feet and washes his feet while kissing them and wiping his feet with her hair. Simon, watching this happens, thinks in his head, if this man were truly the Messiah, he would know what kind of woman this is and he would not associate with her. Jesus, in kind of tongue-in-cheek, pulls a messianic move and reads Simon's mind. He knows what Simon is thinking and he gives Simon a parable. This parable uses a common Jewish manner of teaching, called Kal Wayomer, which moves from the light to the heavy, 
from the easy to the more difficult situation. He says there is a man who owes a, a collector 500 denarii and another who owes him 50 denarii. If he forgives both of these men, which one will love him more? This is easy for Simon. He says, of course, the man who owed 500 denarii. Jesus says that's correct because for whom much is forgiven, uh, they love all the more. Now, 500 denarii is about 21 months' salary, and 50 denarii is about two months' salary in our terms. But Jesus then points out the fact that when he entered Simon's house, Simon provided no water for his feet to be washed, and he did not greet him with a kiss. These were basics expected in their culture. This is like saying hello, shaking someone's hand, and offering to take their coat. Simon treated Jesus incredibly cold when he entered his house, and perhaps this woman saw how the Messiah who saved her, who loved her, was being treated in the house of Simon and couldn't bear it. She loved Jesus all the more because she knew how much she had been forgiven. Simon had as much to be forgiven for, but he did not understand that he needed this forgiveness. Simon owes more than this woman because this woman's debt has already been forgiven. Then Jesus, at the end of this interaction, to make it very clear on what basis this woman was saved because he says to her that her sins are forgiven. He says that it is her faith that has saved her, not her actions. Her actions were an expression of her faith. Faith leads us to love the one who has saved us. At this point, Jesus embarks on his third and final preaching tour. And it's in the very first episode of this tour where Israel finally rejects him. On this tour, we are told 15 people that are with him, his 12 disciples now finally being complete, and three women are named, although there were perhaps more. <clears throat> These women are Mary Magdalene, who it says had seven demons that had gone out of her. Jesus had cleansed her of those demons. There was Joanna, who was the wife of Cusa. We don't know much about her, but we are told here that she is the wife of one of Herod's stewards. So Jesus' ministry had even stretched into the house of Herod Antipas. And lastly, Susanna. We don't know anything about her. But these women also supported Jesus' ministry financially. You'll notice that all of these men abandoned their jobs in order to follow Jesus. The role of women in Jesus' ministry was significant. They were not apostles. They did not go out and teach. But Jesus' ministry was supported by them in a way that blessed them and blessed Jesus and the apostles. <clears throat> The role of Gentiles. That was the other one of Luke's subpoints. So here we come to the rejection of Jesus. Notice there's not much time here between John's rejection and Jesus' rejection. Mark records 
that those who are with him, those 12 disciples and perhaps some of the women here called his own people, they heard about the crowds that were gathering outside the house which Jesus was staying in, and they went out to take custody of Jesus. For they were saying he has lost his senses. Now this is recorded by Mark, who's particularly concerned with Jesus' ability to control his body and his mind. He is writing to Romans, who value this as the ideal man. Mark, who is identifying Jesus as the ideal man, records here that he just about lost it. Jesus is acting manic here. And his disciples understand this. They see that something is different about Jesus. This is going to happen again the night before his crucifixion, where they will notice that something is not right. Something is not normal with Jesus. The next words by Mark is, the scribes and the Pharisees came down from Jerusalem. They weren't coming down for a pleasant visit. They weren't coming down for even an innocuous visit like with Simon. They were coming down for the purpose of rejecting him. And so Jesus here performs his second messianic miracle. He forces their hand. He does not allow them to avoid this situation. We saw the first messianic miracle already that Jesus healed a Jewish leper. This had never been done in the history of Israel before Jesus. And now he performs his second, the exercising of a demon which causes muteness. Now in first century Israel, they would recognize the uniqueness of this miracle. For us, we don't see much of a difference. In fact, we are only alerted to the difference by the different reaction to this miracle by those who watched it happen. To understand this, we have to look at a bit of background. The Pharisees were accustomed to performing exorcisms. They had a ritual which they followed. In fact, many of the pseudepigraphal and apocryphal books record these kinds of exorcisms as historical events. Here we have a story of an exorcism by a rabbi Simeon. It says mention can be made of a story about the fourth generation of Tinnitic rabbi Simeon ben Yose, a demon ben Tamalian, is said to enter the emperor's daughter. When Rabbi Simeon arrived, he called out to the demon ben Tamalian, get out, ben Tamalian, get out. The story says that as he said this, the demon left the girl. The Pharisaic ritual for exercising a demon began and ended with their ability to communicate with the demon. They would have to identify its name in the end in order to have any hope of exercising it. So you can see how exercising a demon, which causes the host to be mute, would be nearly impossible for a Pharisee. Jesus himself uses this ritual when he exercises the demon named Legion. Mark 5.8 says he had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, although Jesus does use this tactic once, 
In every other case when she exercises a demon, it is never recorded that he ever uses this tactic another time. In fact, people would be fascinated with Jesus because he casts out demons with authority. This means that he didn't follow the regular ritual, but still that was not enough evidence for them to see his full authority, his divine authority as the Messiah. But here, when he performed an exorcism that would frankly be impossible to the minds of a Jew, then they could not deny that that authority was messianic. And that is exactly how they responded. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? This response only happens three times in response to messianic miracles. The son of David is a messianic title. When Jesus performed this, they recognized that only the Messiah could do this. And they began to ask out loud, is this the Messiah? Now in the Greek here, the question expects a negative answer. They are not expressing faith here. They're expressing disbelief. The evidence is not lining up with what they already believe. They could be convinced either way, but they're expecting someone to talk them out of this natural conclusion. And in walk the Pharisees. They are very successful in talking Israel out of this conclusion. In fact, Israel, even to today, suffers from the problem of leader worship. They follow their leaders even into the pits of hell. One of the excuses that Jews will give for not believing in the Messiah is if he were the Messiah, our rabbis would believe in him. This is exactly what's going on here in first century Israel. If Jesus were the Messiah, he would be friends with the Pharisees. The Pharisees would believe in him. Remember, there were Sadducees and Pharisees opposing theological groups. The Sadducees were the higher-up elites, friends with the Romans. The Pharisees were the theologians of the people. The people wanted to follow these Pharisees. The Pharisees promised a wide entrance into the kingdom, anyone who was born a Jew, and then anyone who would keep the oral law, not the Mosaic law, the oral law, would be elevated in their position. This allowed them on their own righteousness to feel as if they were attaining rewards in the kingdom. The people liked the Pharisees, by and large. They followed the Pharisees because it was a self-gratifying theology. It was a heavy burden, a heavy weight, but it was self-gratifying nonetheless. And so when the Pharisees pronounced their rejection of the Messiah, Israel as a whole will follow. It says, but when the Pharisees heard this, they heard the people, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. It's possible that they had no idea here what they were doing the gravity of the situation they were putting themselves in. Jesus will call this sin the blasphemy of the Spirit, blasphemy against the Spirit. He says, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. 
Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, this is called the unpardonable sin, and you'll find just about every theological system absconding with this doctrine in order to teach you that you have to follow their theology or be damned forever. I've even heard that speaking in tongues, if you don't do this, that's the unpardonable sin. You'll go to hell if you don't speak in tongues. The most common explanation of this is unbelief. The sin of unbelief is the unpardonable sin. Every single person who has ever been saved has been saved from the sin of unbelief. This cannot be the unpardonable sin. The problem with all of these interpretations is they ignore completely and wholeheartedly everything about the context. It is more than significant that the unpardonable sin is only mentioned once in all of Scripture because it has only been committed once in all of Scripture, and it could only be committed once. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Let's talk about what blasphemy against the Spirit means here. There were multiple witnesses sent to point towards the Messiah, to point towards Jesus as the Messiah. Two weeks ago, we looked at those witnesses. There was the witness of John, who was the forerunner, who was meant to point to Jesus. Israel rejected John. They imprisoned him, and eventually they will kill him. There is the witness of the Father. At Jesus' baptism, God spoke from heaven and said, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. That witness was rejected by the Pharisees, not by the people who had been receiving the baptism of John. John's point in John chapter 5 was that the Pharisees had even rejected the witness of the scripture because Moses himself pointed to Jesus. If they had truly understood the righteousness of the law, the requirement that no man could live up to, but that Jesus Christ would, they would have understood that Jesus was the Messiah. And so those three, John, God the Father, and scripture itself had already been rejected in pointing towards Jesus, and all that was left were his works. And his works were performed by the power of the Spirit. Now jump forward about 50 years, and John, who witnessed this rejection, this blasphemy against the Spirit, writes this at the end of his first epistle, which focuses a great deal on who exactly Jesus is, the Son of God. That witness that was once for all handed down to the saints, that thing which they all witnessed and that they were testifying to. And as John comes to his climax, he writes this, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, the blood, and the three are in agreement. Now this also has many different interpretations. 
My best understanding of this verse, which I think is derived from the context here, is that water, which is Christ's baptism, in which he received his greatest witness, John's testimony, and God the Father's testimony, the completion of his duty, his task here on earth, his crucifixion on the cross in which he died for all of our sins, and this would include his resurrection, his greatest of all works. But the Spirit also points to Jesus Christ. Only Jesus Christ could have performed and could have spoken all the things that Jesus Christ did and said. Jesus Christ alone could claim to be the Messiah, and his works validated that. His works were done by the Spirit, and so when they rejected this final witness to him, there was nothing left for them to reject. They had rejected every single witness which God would send about his Son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Any more witnesses, and they would just be heaping up coals on their own head. They would not believe. The witnesses were done, the kingdom offer was withdrawn, and they were destined for judgment. This is the unpardonable sin. It is a unique sin, not one that any person in this room or who will ever watch this video could ever repeat. This was a national sin, not committed by any individuals, but by Israel as a whole. It had the entire Old Testament of anticipation behind it, because the entire Old Testament pointed towards the receiving of the King of God's choosing. That was the purpose. That was what was offered to first century Israel. That is not being offered today. It could not be offered to any other nation. It was promised to Israel. Only Israel could commit this sin. It could not be repeated. Only first century Israel was made this offer. The generation before and the generation after were not provided this opportunity to receive the king of God's choosing. This was also an irrevocable commitment to unbelief. With this rejection of these witnesses, with the commission of this unpardonable sin, the kingdom offer was permanently revoked. Israel could not repent to the point that the kingdom would come to first century Israel. That door was closed, that ship had sailed. As well, judgment was inevitable. There was nothing that any of them could do to avoid Jerusalem being destroyed and the temple being torn down. That judgment would come. There is historical precedent for this as well. We can think of King Manasseh in 2 Kings chapter 22. In 2 Chronicles 33 to 34, we get this record where King Manasseh, one of the most vile kings of Israel, finally pushed God's patience to the point of no return. And God pronounced judgment on Jerusalem and on the temple. They would both be destroyed, and Jerusalem, or uh, Judah, would be carried out into, ba into Babylon to be judged for 70 years. 
Manasseh himself repented of his sins. Manasseh was spiritually rescued from the judgment which he brought physically on Judah. Josiah came after Manasseh, and he was one of Israel's best kings. But even the goodness of Josiah, even the faith of Josiah, could not spare Israel from the judgment that had been pronounced in Manasseh's days. But what God did do for Josiah was said that his judgment would wait until Josiah was no longer king in Israel. And when Josiah was no longer king in Israel, Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, and Israel was hauled off into Babylon. This happened in Kadesh Barnea as well, in Numbers 13 and 14, where the first generation of Israel, the Exodus generation, was brought out of Egypt and offered entrance into the Promised Land. In a very similar manner to first century Israel, who had been offered entrance into the kingdom. But because of their unbelief, because of their rebellion against Moses and Israel, because they did not receive the witness of Joshua and Caleb, but instead chose to follow the lie of the majority, they were barred entrance from the promised land, and it was given to a later generation, the wilderness generation, who would enter because they would trust in the Lord. And they would trust in the one who the Lord put over them, Joshua. This explains Christ's dissonant response at the triumphal entry. Why, when the crowds of Israel are singing Hosanna, Hosanna, and welcoming him in with the messianic call, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, why then is his response one of woe and destruction? If they are here receiving him as their Messiah, why does he say Jerusalem will be destroyed? It says, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem, in, hem you in on every side. They will level you to the ground and your children within you. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. One might wonder when Jesus is being received as the Messiah in Jerusalem, why does he respond in such an odd way? Because the unpardonable sin had already been committed by first century Israel and judgment was imminent. There was nothing they could do at this point to avoid it. And it came in 70 AD, 40 years after the crucifixion, the final rejection of the Messiah. At this point, Jesus' earthly ministry makes a 180. It is no longer for the purpose of getting Israel to make a decision about his messiahship. They have made their decision. It is irrevocable. So his ministry's purpose changes. It changes from the offer of the kingdom to the nation as a whole to the offer of salvation to the individual. 
He begins to prepare for the intercalation of the church, the time period between the first offering of the kingdom and the second offering. He prepares his disciples, his apostles, the twelve, to be the pillars of this church. That after he is resurrected and ascended back into heaven, they would remain to build the church. And he is going to continue to heal. He is going to continue to cast out demons, but he will do so not to bring Israel to faith, but as a gift to those who have faith. He will do so out of his compassion, just as he had done to the widow in Nain. Yet after he pronounces this judgment on Israel, the Pharisees have the gall to tell him, well, you just didn't give us enough signs. He says an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah, the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now we might still understand this without fully understanding what happened to Jonah. Jonah was indeed in the body of a whale for three days, and Jesus was indeed in the earth for three days, but Jesus was in the earth three days dead. So was Jonah. In the belly of a whale, three days dead. It was not like we learn in Sunday school that Noah was just camping out and waiting for three days in the belly of this whale. And I'm not even sure where this idea came from because it is not found anywhere in scripture. Jonah died before that whale even touched him. It's recorded in Jonah chapter 2 verses 5 and 6. It says, the water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. This is not survivable. This is the account of the death of his body. At first, he was being engulfed by the waves at the top of the ocean. Finally, he drowned and succumbed to those waves and he drifted down to the bottom of the ocean where the weeds were able to wrap themselves around him. His body was dead. In the next verse, we get the account of the descent of his soul into Sheol. I descended to the roots of the mountains, the heart of the earth. The earth with its bars was around me forever. This exact phrase shows up elsewhere multiple times. In each case, it means Sheol, the bosom of Abraham, death. Job 38:17, have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Isaiah 38, I said in the middle of my life, I am to enter the gates of Sheol. I am to be deprived of the rest of my years. Psalm 9.13, be gracious to me, O Lord, see my affliction from those who hate me, you who lift me up from the gates of death. 
Psalm 107, 18, their soul abhorred all kinds of food and they drew near to the gates of death. This was also the Jewish interpretation of this book. Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer interprets Jonah's prayer as such. Sovereign of all the universe, thou art called the one who kills and the one who makes alive. Behold, my soul has reached unto death. Now restore me to life. Or perhaps we might understand better from the context of Jonah chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the stomach of the fish, the location of his body. And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. His body and his soul were in two different locations. This is the definition of death. And so finally, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited up or vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. <clears throat> I only read you half of Jonah 2.6. Here's the second half. You have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. This word pit is shahat, which is a synonym to the word sheol. Sheol had already been used once in chapter 2 of Jonah, and it is not the Jewish custom to be repetitive with their language. Where there is a possible synonym, they may choose to use it just to avoid being repetitive. It is no accident that in Psalm 16, a messianic psalm, prophesying the resurrection of the Messiah, the same phrase is used. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. The entire prophetic ministry of Jonah is important in this context. Because Nineveh, a country, or a city rather, with almost no revelation, received the light of prophecy from Jonah. But despite all the revelation in Israel, none of it had been received. When push came to shove, they did not believe. And so Jesus is leaving them with one last witness, the witness that Nineveh as well received. Jesus Christ in the body of the whale for three days, dead and then resurrected. This happened with Jonah. Jesus will perform this miracle on Lazarus as a foreshadow of his own. We are recorded here in John 11 that many people did come to believe because of this miracle. This was the miracle that they expected. And when it was performed, many did believe. Far more, however, did believe when Jesus himself was resurrected. Those three are in the past. There is still one more episode of this sign of Jonah. 
and it is being reserved for the final generation of Israel, the generation which will endure the tribulation, the final seven years of world history, the very purpose and focus of that tribulation period is to turn the stiff necks of Israel back towards God so that they will finally receive their king, Jesus Messiah. God will send two witnesses to preach to Israel. These two witnesses will be assassinated by the Antichrist. They will lay dead in the streets of Jerusalem for three days. And then God will resurrect these two witnesses. The timing of this is important as well. Revelation 13 indicates that at the midpoint of the tribulation, when the Antichrist enters into the temple, stops the temple sacrifices and declares himself to be God, that they better run. Both of these events happen at the midpoint of the tribulation. The death and resurrection of these witnesses and the activities of the Antichrist which tell Israel to get out of Jerusalem. They will go out of Jerusalem because they will understand and receive this witness. And they will be protected in Petra for three and a half years. And then they themselves will be resurrected after three days. Hosea 6 records this future event. These may even be the exact words that the leadership of Israel will call on Israel to repentance with. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days, and he will raise us up on the third day, that we may live before him. Scripture does not record simply history. It records history and future. We are smack dab in the middle of it. It's not all over. Israel will receive her Messiah. A second generation will get the opportunity, and they will receive him. Nonetheless, first century Israel is under judgment. And Jesus tells them of this judgment with a final parable. Actually, his first national parable. From this point forward, he will only teach in parables, because if he gave them clear teaching, it would only increase the judgment against them. And so here he teaches with a parable. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. This was the state of Israel at the time Jesus began to offer the kingdom. It had been swept and put in order. This was the ministry of John. This is the wrong verse heading. This, or, yeah, this should be in Matthew chapter 3. It says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. 
John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John's ministry was to prepare Israel to receive the Messiah. He swept Israel, he put it in order, and many did receive Jesus, but Israel as a nation rejected him. Their final state is worse than than the first. Rather than being under Roman occupation with partial sovereignty, they will be destroyed and scattered. But this parable looks forward to the future judgment of Israel in the tribulation period. It says, then it goes, that is the spirit, and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. They go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. A wicked spirit will come in and dwell among Israel. Jesus has already declared that though they've rejected him, they will receive another. The office of the Antichrist in the future is primarily to do with Israel. He will, like the other Gentile kingdoms, the seven that come before him, if you read Revelation 17, being the seventh and last Gentile nation to crush Israel under its, its, uh, its own power, the Antichrist will be that one whom they receive, the one they make a covenant with in the last days, rather than keeping their covenant with Jesus Christ. The covenant of Moses, which pointed towards the Messiah, they will make a new covenant with the Antichrist, and it will lead to their persecution and nearly to their destruction. But Jesus will rise, raise them on the third day of their repentance. At the end of the tribulation period, he will rescue them from the persecution of the Antichrist when he and his armies have surrounded them on all sides. That is the rejection of the Messiah by first century Israel or the unpardonable sin. Next week, we begin to look at the change in God's kingdom program because of the rejection of the kingdom.